After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Hey everyone, I'm back, and I'm back with an old friend, uh, both of, of mine and of uh, Ram Dass's, and someone who's uh, just central to much of what I went through back in the day, and who has carried the torch, and Rick Doblin, great to have you here, of MAPS, everybody, hi Rick. Yes, Saragu, it's wonderful. Thank you for having me. And um, yeah, we, we all go pretty far back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, well, 34 years, MAPS now. You know, uh, everybody, a multidisciplinary and associate disciplinary association for psychedelic studies. And that's what I meant around carrying this torch. And we're going we're gonna to talk about some exciting things uh, around what, uh, what is going on right now, which is, is really. Uh, quite something. Uh, but before we do that, I, I want to tell you something you probably you don't know. I know you don't oh, know. Oh. Yeah. Uh, so Ramdas has a memoir that's coming out uh, at the beginning of 2021, which is the 50th anniversary of Be Here Now. Uh, and uh, I was reading it and suddenly I came upon uh, uh-huh. this little paragraph I'm going to read to you and get your reaction. So it's about the... Uh, the uh, the Good Friday experiment that they did, Larry oh, and Alpert, uh, back uh-huh. in the day. And then, so it says in here, uh, so Tim would claim that the recidiv- this is about, you know, the prison stuff, uh, not just the Good Friday thing. Tim would claim that the recidivism rate declined dramatically uh, and that the experiment was proof that psychedelics could engineer the kind of social change that fit his visionary ideals. The main conclusion can be stated as follows, he wrote at one point. One and one half years after termination of the program, the rate of new crimes has been reduced. In later years, these claims would prove to be exaggerated. <laughs> a long-term review by researchers Rick Doblin and Michael Forcier found that the claims didn't stand up to rigorous analysis, which is a, a major statement, actually, if you fast forward to what you're doing now and making sure it's, you know, what, what is going on is standing up to rigorous analysis. Recidivism did go down with the intentional personal contact. Both Tim and our grad students invested a great deal in their relationships with the inmates. But it was unclear whether mushrooms had much to do with this. And I find that absurd. 
I mean, I can't believe Ramdas, you know, I mean, on a scientific basis, but, you know, tell us. Well, well let me just say that the recidivism rate did not go down. And uh-huh. that's what the follow up showed. Really? So it was, uh, I mean, to be charitable, um, what you could say is that once Tim left Harvard, you know, involuntarily or to some extent voluntarily, and he and Ramdas were kicked out, he entered a society that was increasingly in turmoil about psychedelics. And the government was more than willing to try to block any kind of research into the benefits and to exaggerate the risks, all these stories about people going blind under LSD, staring into the sun or chromosome damage or all of that. So there was a massive propaganda campaign on the part of the government to um, exaggerate the risks of these drugs and to not just minimize the discussions about the benefits, but to block research into the benefits. And so I think Tim felt, and this is the charitable portion of it, that in the face of that kind of thing, he could exaggerate the benefits and minimize the risks. Mm, And so, and the further that he got from the date of the research, you know, you can track all of his public statements over time, which I did. And so what I discovered with the Good Friday follow-up that that Ramdas was a big part of was that um, it had been come to be reported on in Time magazine that um, of the 20 divinity students from Andover Newton Theological Seminary that went into a church on Good Friday in 1962 with Reverend Howard Thurman, who was incredible African-American minister and orator. He was uh, Martin Luther King's mentor. Mm. And Martin Luther King got a PhD at Boston University in this place. Took the, the Good Friday experiment took place at the Marsh Chapel at Boston University. Right. And so of the 20 students that were there in the experiment from Andover Newton Divinity School, ha- they all got a pill and half was placebo and half was psilocybin. And there were 10 experimenters of whom Ramdas was one, four students and two experimenters. And they had, um, you know, five groups like that. And so of the group of six, you could say two of the students got the placebo, two of them got the psilocybin. And of the sort of experimenting team, one of them got the psilocybin, one of them got the placebo. So um, it was reported in 1966 in Time Magazine, everybody who had the psilocybin had a mystical experience. And it kept being reported on like that. And Walter Pankey, who actually did the study, died in a scuba diving accident in 1971. So in the middle of the um, 80s, under uh, Nancy Reagan, Just Say No, when I was trying to work on a senior thesis at college, I had followed Tim's approach, uh, his recommendation to uh, uh, tune in, uh, turn on, and drop out. Um, I had dropped out of college for 10 years. I figured that I could do a long-term follow-up to the Good Friday experiment since I wasn't asking for permission to give psilocybin to anybody. I was just asking for people's permission. So anyway, I spent years and I tracked 19 of the 20 of these people down. And as it turned out, um, nine out of the 20 did have a mystical experience and eight out of the nine had psilocybin. So it wasn't 100%. But what I also discovered was that Uh, One of the persons who had the psilocybin was so taken by Reverend Howard Thurman's uh, speeches and his oration, and part of it was you have to tell people there's a man on the cross. You must tell people there's a man on the cross. So he thought, oh, okay, I'll tell the president. And he thought, oh, the president is in Washington. I'll tell the president of the university. And he left the basement chapel, and he went outside, and it's um, on Commonwealth Avenue, which is a very 
heavily trafficked street with the streetcars and cars. And, and this guy was uh, sort of running to tell the president. And so Houston Smith and uh, Tim Leary ran after him. And they um, got him, saved him from getting hurt, but he didn't want to go inside. So they gave him a shot of Thorazine and then brought him in. But they never mentioned that. The whole shot of Thorazine was completely missing from the entire story of the Good Friday experiment. So I discovered that they had exaggerated the benefits and minimized the risks. And then I got Michael Forcier, who um, worked at the Massachusetts Department of Corrections. Um, eventually, I published a paper about it in the Journal of Transpersonal Psychology in uh, 1991. And there was this um, fellow, Mark, Michael Forcier, and he contacted me and he said, I've got the record, I've got access to the records of the people from the Concord Prison Experiment. Would you like to do a follow up study to them? And I jumped at the chance because Tim had lost the list. There was no list of who these people were, it was completely unknown. Tim didn't have any clues. Ramdas had no clues. So now it's like a goldmine, this guy is saying. And I thought, I'd love to do this because this is one of the most successful studies in the history of psychedelic research where they've reduced recidivism rates. You know, you can say one thing or another about did you have a mystical experience or not, but it's kind of subjective. But whether or not you return to prison is an yeah, objective yeah. measure. That's real. So yeah. I said, I'd love to go ahead and do a follow-up study. And so it took us a year to get permission. It went all the way up to the governor of Massachusetts. It was William Weld at the time. And the permission that came back had um, said yes, but somebody had hand scribbled on it, but no administration of psilocybin. Mm. So just to make sure, because all we were going to do is uh, looking at the criminal justice system records. So in any case, I started this as an advocate, as someone who believed that this was one of the most important studies in the history of psychedelic psychotherapy. But the more I got into the data, the more I got uh, confused. And the more I got confused, I started seeing a way in which the results had been, um, well, I guess you could say scientific fraud. The results had been misinterpreted and misrepresented. Mm. And one of the key things um, that I think everybody can understand is that the recidivism rate is going to go up and up and up the more time people are released from prison. So you could say the first day everybody's released from prison, you've got a hundred percent reduction in recidivism. Every, nobody's gone back to jail. Your experiment is great. But <laughs> if you looked at two months, you know, maybe, you know, then you look at a year. You, so the more time goes by, the more likely it is that people are going to go back to prison. Mm. And so the report on the Concord prison experiment looked at the recidivism rate of the various uh, roughly 34 people that had been in the study that had gotten psilocybin while they were in prison to help them have this mystical pro-social experience, that they reported those results at an average of 18 months out of prison. Mm. But the base rate was they were comparing it to was people that had been out of prison for two years. So it's a completely unfair comparison. When you compare it accurately, the 18 months versus the 18 months, there was no difference in the groups. Mm. Tim had said at, in the early days, he had acknowledged this, and then it just kept getting bigger, better and better and better over time in his book, Flashbacks. It was great. But what he had said early is that the recidivism rate was um, 
higher in the um, psilocybin group than he anticipated because these people were supervised by their parole officers much more carefully and that they were violated for minor things like they weren't at work when the probation officer came or things like that. And that it was minor things because they were so rigorously supervised because they'd been in the psilocybin experiment. So that was an excuse. So when I looked at the criminal justice system records, it turns out that um, it is true that people were violated for um, missing certain things. Mm. But it was usually because they had been arrested for another crime for which they were later convicted. So there was no reduction in recidivism. There was no, they're supervised more closely because they had committed new crimes. And the conclusion, though, that I made was that both Tim and Ralph and Ramdas realized while they were doing the experiment that you can't rely on a psychedelic experience to do everything. You need to integrate it. You need follow-up. You need support. So we think about that in terms of um, halfway houses for people that are released. And they actually started, um, so Ramdas and uh, Ralph Metzner and, and Leary started support groups for the prisoners. And when they got kicked out of Harvard, that all fell apart. Mm, so right. the conclusion is that this um, failed experiment um, was evidence that Leary had gone beyond science and was sort of in a public relations campaign and didn't care about being relevant to the data anymore. And that uh, also that there is this sort of two-part process, the experience and then the integration of it. And that in the future, I believe that psychedelics can play a major role in reducing recidivism and reducing trauma for people in prison, but it has to be accompanied with follow-up and support. Mm. So I'm glad that Ramdas is writing about it, but it's maybe not quite accurate what he's writing because um, the, the experiment um, failed. And what I'll say about Ralph Metzner, who also sadly recently died, yeah. is that Ralph wrote a great commentary to the article that we published about the Concord Prison follow-up, where Ralph acknowledged that um, over time, he said, you know, as we look back, we kind of saw what we wanted to see. Mm -hmm. He tried to, ex I think Tim knew what he was doing. I think Ralph, maybe in the passage of time, just he talked about the psychological mechanisms of how you change your memory and it sort of conforms to what you wanted to happen instead of what actually happened. So uh, Leary was never one to be willing to acknowledge a mistake. Um, <laughs> Ramdas was great in that regard. And so was Ralph Metzler. Mm. Are you, have you done, has uh, MAPS been involved whatsoever with any, um, uh, in terms of uh, working with prisoners at all over these years? Um, well, hmm. there was one per So while they're in prison, no. In our PTSD study, there was one person who had been in prison for murder and he got out of prison and then he said he had PTSD and he wanted to be in our study. And most of our therapists were too scared to work with him, but that there was one team that was willing to work with him. And as it turned out, um, he'd been sexually and physically abused by his father and violently abused and at one point in time they had a fight and the father had a gun and they wrestled over the gun and the gun went off by accident and the father got killed so that was the story of the um 
the son, you know, that, that this was an accident. And so he was in prison for murder, but he got out after a certain period of time. And the challenge for him during the first MDMA experience was where things come to the surface that are difficult, difficult memories. And, and so he started questioning, was it really an accident? Mm. You know, that was his legal defense. Mm. And the thought that he, out of this fear and abuse that he had received, that he might actually have intended or wanted to kill his father was too much for him. And so he dropped out of the study. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, We've talked before, and uh, I'm—I think I'm pretty well informed around the work that you've you've done, and the work that you are doing, and where this is going. And again, we'll talk about that a little bit in a little bit. But I came across a real, what I would call a real world um, story, which is I have a family member who had some friends, and they lost a young couple, you know, I guess in their mid-30s or something, they lost a child, maybe just a few years old. But old and you know, I mean, obviously it was an extraordinarily tra traumatic experience. Tremendous depression set in. And he said they called him because he was very friendly with them and he had some ideas about, advisal for them in terms of how they could come out of this period in their lives. And it ended up that he had done some work with uh, uh, psychedelics, with mushrooms, uh, working with a therapist over some other issues that he had. So he, it was very successful for him. And he recommended this. And uh, the father of the child, because apparently the at some point, uh, the mother got pregnant again. The father of the child went through this uh, regime with a therapist. Uh, this was in Canada, where I think it's a, a lot more open than it is here in the States, uh, being able to do such a thing. It's not more legal, but it's just not as hunted down. It's oh, not as uh -huh. you know, right. high pressure. Right. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Anyhow, so this person went through this, the father of the lost child, and um, my cousin said to me, you cannot believe the transformation that this person in one session uh, went, th what he went through was uh, nigh on miraculous in terms of him coming out of the darkest, darkest of places, and uh, that and not only did he come out of this dark place, but he also got in touch with the, the ineffable, a divine presence experience, the stuff that we all did back in the late 60s, early 70s, that, that just turned us on in a way that we had never, never experienced the, you know, the vast interconnectivity of everything and the the kind of presence that uh, is uh, comes to the surface uh, with uh, psilocybin in particular, and um, he anyhow he just went on about it and and the the way in which these people's lives were turned around just yeah. extraordinary you know and I know you see this all the time this is just part of the work but but when you know it hits home when you have somebody in your family 
you know, that is relaying something like this. The efficacy of it is extraordinary. Yeah, it's so, I'm so glad you shared that, Raghu, because, um, you know, th there's been um, discussions about whether prolonged grief is a form of PTSD. And the conclusion of some of the experts in the whole field of PTSD research is that it is. And so you end up getting in these um, sort of patterns of response, of emotional response that are difficult for people to get out of. And psychedelics have this just incredible ability to um, break these kind of patterns and bring new emotions. And then also this idea of um, being connected to the ineffable, to the spiritual. You, you have a different perspective on death and you're able to celebrate life and move on. So it, it's a wonderful story. And, and I, I think the sadness, the, the flip side of that is um, just think about all these people now that are healthcare workers that are mm. seeing all sorts of people die because of COVID and the many healthcare workers are at risk and how do we're going to help them and all of this. So there's an enormous amount of grief that's going to be needing to be processed. And um, the sadness for me is that it's going to take us a while to work through the system to make these things available in above ground ways that are covered by insurance. Mm, yeah. You know, and we're talking about MDMA is the central psychedelic that you use in these experiments. And, yeah. um, and you've talked about how it really helps to process trauma mm -hmm. and, uh, and it includes memory enhancement. Can you talk about that memory enhancement and yeah. the trauma memory and the changing the reaction and, and the story that, that uh, we tell ourselves? Um, yeah. So when memory, when, when experiences happen that are emotionally painful and challenging and they're difficult for people to process, what happens a lot of times is that people push them out of their memory, that they don't want to think about them. And the, the problem with PTSD is that these traumatic experiences are never really fully pushed out of awareness. When they're unconscious, they're affecting you and your, your whole sense of the world, but also they for PTSD, they come in nightmares. They come in uh, memories during the day that are triggered by different reminders of the event. They are associated with all sorts of, um, you know, emotional numbing and or hypervigilance. So what MDMA does is it reduces the activity in the amygdala, the fear processing part of the brain. Um, forgetting about neuroscience, what it does is it helps people deal with more difficult emotions that they're not as painful. They can look at them without being overwhelmed. And so what we see is that it actually enhances people's memory of trauma, that people have repressed a lot of the memories. of. So one of the examples um, is a firefighter who was in our study, and he and a bunch of his fellows had gone into a burning building, and the roof collapsed, and about eight of the people were killed. And it was a big tragedy in firefighters. And, and he ended up having PTSD and unable to work and disabled with PTSD. And so under the influence of MDMA, what he said was he thought he remembered what happened. But there was a whole big section of the worst part that he had blocked out of his conscious awareness completely. And under the influence of MDMA, it came to the surface. So that's the part about memory enhancement is that it's um, now. You could make some statements like, is it real memory? Is it symbolic? Is it um, accurate? 
And those are sometimes hard to prove one way or another. But for us, the question is, are they therapeutic? And so what we find, it's a process called fear extinction and memory reconsolidation. So mm. that the old view of memory was that you, you have a memory, it's stored in your brain. When you remember it, it's like taking a book off the shelf and then you read the book and then you put the book back. And what's actually the case is that the memories are stored, like there's an episodic memory, there's the emotional memory connected to it, there's you know smells and sounds that are um, connected to it. So when you remember something, it sort of comes together from different parts of your brain. And if it's a painful memory, or even if it's a normal memory, when you um, have just remembered it, you actually have to like reprint the book to reconsolidate the memory. And that explains how over time, you know, Tim Leary's memory over the results of the Concord <laughs> prison experiment or, uh, or how memories change over time. Yeah. So to look at a, a painful memory from a position of safety, which is what the MDMA gives you, and then you're able to process it to put it into long-term storage. So MDMA also increases connectivity between the hypothalamus and the amygdala so that you can move memories that seem like they're always about to happen or always happening as post-traumatic is never really post. It's always about to happen. So you can process the memory into long-term storage, and then you reconsolidate the memory. And when you put it together again in, in this distributed memory in the brain, you've basically swapped out the original emotion of fear and terror with the new emotion of it's in the past, I've dealt with it, I've survived. And so then when you remember it later, you have this memory enhancement for what actually happened but the painful emotions connected to it have been replaced by a sense that that's my story. I've integrated, I've accepted. Mm. There's even measures that we use that are called post-traumatic growth inventory. So how you grow from trauma. Trauma can often be completely disabling, but when it's handled well, you can actually enhance your life because it causes you to question, what is the purpose of life? What are you trying to do? What is your um, priorities? And so you can end up having um, post-traumatic growth. And so we see that in a lot of the subjects. And so I think this idea of um, you know, memory enhancement for the trauma and then also this um, processing, fear extinction, and memory reconsolidation are a good way to understand how MDMA works. Mm. Why MDMA and, uh, more so than uh, psilocybin well, particularly? Um, yeah. So I'll, I'll just say that it was, you know, after reading um, Ram Dass and uh, Be Here Now. And, you know, it was in 1972 when I decided to focus my life on psychedelics. And all it, I knew was the classic psychedelics. I had heard about MDA, which is like an MDMA-LSD combination, but I experimented a lot with LSD, with mescaline, and um, really thought about psychedelics as sort of the classic psychedelics, the ego dissolution, the mm -hmm. yeah. emergence of spiritual connections. That's what I thought were psychedelics. So um, when I went back to college after 10 years dropped out in 1982, that's when I um, went for a month-long workshop at Esalen with Stan and Christina Groff, and that's where I learned about MDMA. And that's where I discovered there's this whole new drug that operates differently, but it's more gentle. It's uh, easier to integrate. It doesn't dissolve the ego in the same ways. And so in 1984, I started a nonprofit before MAPS to try to protect MDMA when we knew that the DEA would come after it because it was being sold publicly as ecstasy. 
Yeah. The DEA didn't know about therapy. But, um, we had these hearings with um, DEA and the DEA freaked out because we were winning the hearings, winning in the court of public opinion. There was actually Brother David Steindeross talked about how um, half dose of NDMA helped him to deepen his meditation practice. And, and I'll just say that what we see now is a bunch of interest in um, lifelong Zen meditators and others coming back to using psychedelics rarely, but as a kind of a deepening teaching tool to help them improve their meditation practice. So in any case, we were doing this uh, um, PR campaign. We were winning in the courts. DEA freaked out. They criminalized MDMA. And so I started MAPS in 86. And then I had a strategic decision to make. Which of all the psychedelics is most likely to make it through the system? And then what clinical condition do I put it towards? So what is the drug-patient combination that's most likely to move through a culture that has suppressed these things, blocked the research, demonized the users, exaggerated the risks, denied the benefits? And so I felt, first off, that MDMA is the most gentle, it's the easiest to integrate, but also there's another part of it, which is that our view is that if you're going to be a psychedelic therapist, you're going to be more effective if you've done the drug yourself. Like, you know, you wouldn't go to a meditation teacher that never meditated <laughs> or, or a yoga yeah. teacher that didn't do yoga or, or you know, so yeah. it makes, I'm not saying that every therapist who has done MDMA or psychedelics is better than every therapist who's not. If they were to, I'm just saying that every therapist themselves would be more effective if they've tried it. So, and that was the popular view in the research community in the 60s, that the people that were working on LSD research, they had the nurses do LSD. They had everybody that was in touch with the patient do the LSD. So I felt like psychiatrists and therapists are more scared of psilocybin or LSD or the classic psychedelics because you have to surrender control more. You have to be willing to um, have things emerge that you're not completely in control of, and it can be deep and painful. And, and so I felt that MDMA is b both because it's more gentle, it's more um, easy to integrate, but also because we can sort of tell a story to psychiatrists and therapists and encourage more of them to try it first. And then MDMA is ideal for PTSD. So we needed a patient population that was um, sympathetic to the American public. And so even though most of the PTSD patients are women who've been sexually abused or childhood sexual abuse or domestic violence or accidents or things, the veterans are the ones that are held in high regard in our culture. And there are over a million veterans uh, disabled with PTSD right now, uh, receiving PTSD disability payments from the VA. So I just felt like for PTSD, the drugs we have don't work that well, the SSRIs, the therapies work pretty well for a, a class of these people but a lot of them, it's too painful for them to do psychotherapy. And so there's a large group of treatment-resistant people, and MDMA is great for PTSD. So that's how I came up with MDMA for mm, PTSD. My goodness. Wow. Amazing. So uh, now, I think April 8th was 34 years, Rick? Yeah. Right? Yeah. I noted. Yeah. Yes. That's and amazing. Uh, and uh, there's a... I mean, when we, uh, Rick and I met up at uh, Ramdas's memorial a couple of months ago in Maui, and you were pretty excited in that moment and said, yeah, we're going to have something to talk about. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's this, uh, you just sent me in the middle of all, you know, just before we got on the Forbes article. Yeah. Um, so this is pretty exciting. Let me, you know, please do uh, relate what's going on because this is, 
this is really yeah. quite something. So uh, what we're talking about, yeah. So I, I call this the most important reality check in all of MAPS's 34 years. And so basically what we've just done is, well, from 1986 to 1992, we had five protocols for MDMA all rejected by the FDA. In 92, the FDA said um, yes to psychedelic research resumption, and they said we could do a phase one dose response safety study that I did with Charlie Grove. And we worked through the 90s on that. Near the end of the 90s, we were thinking that because of all this concern about MDMA neurotoxicity, which we knew was, again, overhyped, and, but it's, it was difficult to argue in some ways against it. That's what was used to block the research. We were thinking we'd do some studies with cancer patients with anxiety. And so um, that's what Charlie and I proposed to the FDA in 92. They said, no, you have to start with a safety study. And so then we ended up doing that through the 90s. And then near the end of the 90s, we went, tried to go back to MDMA for cancer patients. That was also at the time when the whole hype over neurotoxicity was starting to um, um, be challenged more and more successfully. And so, but Charlie said, there's so much controversy about the raves and all of this um, and the demonization of MDMA. I think it's better for me to switch to work with psilocybin. So that's how the psilocybin cancer patient study began, is that Charlie felt that the MDMA cancer patient study was too controversial. So then in 2000, at a conference in San Francisco that Ralph Metzner organized, it was the first conference on ayahuasca. Um, I was approached by Michael Midhofer, who was a member of MAPS. I didn't know him. He'd been trained by Stan Groff in the whole tropic breathwork. And he said um, he wanted to work on an offshore clinic. And I said, no, I don't care about that. I want to make change from the inside out, from the heart of the system, from the belly of the beast. Let's go to the FDA. Michael was an expert in PTSD. And I had worked with someone with uh, PTSD in 1984, and I knew MDMA was great for PTSD. And the neurotoxicity stuff was fading. So that's where Michael and I said, yes, we'll focus on PTSD. So then from 2000 to 2016, we did a series of phase two pilot studies in the US, Israel, Canada, and Switzerland. And then we went to the FDA and said, we're ready to go to phase three. So phase three is the final stage of research to do uh, placebo-controlled, double-blind, randomized controlled studies to prove safety and efficacy to get permission for marketing. And so we worked through uh, 2017 to get uh, permissions, to get all of them together. FDA declared MDMA a breakthrough drug based on our uh, terrific results in phase two. And so then we started at phase three. And so we have to do two 100-person phase three studies. And we have to prove safety and efficacy in both of those. That we can do what's called an interim analysis. And what that means is pre-negotiated that when we had 60% of the first group of 100 had their primary outcome measure and all 100 were enrolled, Then an unblinded data monitoring committee looks at the data and they compare your actuals with your hypotheticals from the power calculations that you did with the statisticians based on phase two studies. And so the idea here is that um, due to the strength of the pharmaceutical company lobbies, this system is tilted towards helping you succeed and get your drug approved. So what you can do with this interim analysis, it's what's called for sample size reestimation. And what that means is that if your actuals are not quite as good as your hypotheticals that you use to do your power calculations, you can add more people to the study to make sure you get statistical significance. The FDA approves based statistical significance not on what's called effect size, 
So effect size is the magnitude of the treatment effect. Statistical significance is just if you have a reliable difference between two groups. With a large number of subjects, you can get statistical significance for very minor effects. And the FDA figures, okay, the marketplace will figure it out. Insurance companies will decide whether to cover it or not. So the interim analysis, the best results are that you don't need to add anybody. The next best are, yeah, you need to add some people, but it's looking good. And the worst you can get is that it's uh, considered futile and you're not getting significance. No matter how many people you add, it's not worth it. And you're told to just shut the study down. And so just to help people realize this is so uh, challenging in a way is that there's only two drugs that the FDA has given breakthrough therapy designation for PTSD. One is MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. The other is a drug called Tanmaya by Tonics Pharmaceuticals. And it was actually an old drug from more than 30 years ago, a sleeping pill. And so what they thought is that if you can help people not have nightmares, and that'll be helpful for PTSD. So they got breakthrough therapy, and they raised well over $100 million, and they did their phase three study, and their interim analysis was in February, and they were told to stop the study for futility. It wasn't working. So then our interim analysis comes along in March, and what we were told was the best possible results, which is we didn't need to add anybody, which means that we have at least a 90% or greater probability of obtaining statistical significance once the other 40 people are treated. And we have at least a medium effect size. We think we'll probably end up with a large effect size. So that means though, that we have demonstrated that we can scale this, that we can succeed in a highly regulated phase three environment. So the other part about the scaling, I'll say, is that our main therapist, Michael and Annie Mithofer, who did treat most of the, they treated more people than anybody else in phase two. They did a phenomenal job, trained in holotopic breathwork. Well, but they were people started joking about the Michael and Annie effect. They were such good therapists that they would get great results even if they didn't give MDMA. Mm. So first off, that wasn't true because we saw the results from their placebo people. But secondly, we decided we would take Michael and Annie out of even working on phase three and instead focus them on training the next generation of therapists. So we trained over um, 70 new therapists for phase three. And now we've got these great results from the interim analysis. So not only does it mean we're likely to succeed um, if we continue the way we're going, you know, there still could be things that throw us off track, but it looks really promising. But we've demonstrated that we can train new therapists too. So that means we will one day, I believe, train thousands of tens of thousands of therapists. And to get back to your question before about psilocybin, is that what we realize, and you know, it's that's not surprising, is that these therapists want to be cross-trained. They don't want to be stuck like I'm an MDMA therapist, but I can't do psilocybin. They want mm. to be trained in ketamine and psilocybin and MDMA, and then who knows, ayahuasca, ibogaine, mescaline, whatever comes down the line. So we will have psychedelic clinics. They won't just be like MAPS clinics for MDMA. We'll have therapists cross-trained. And so I, I think you could make a case, and, and you did about this one person who psilocybin cured his prolonged grief. So psilocybin can be helpful, very much so. But I will say that the first drug that was ever used for PTSD, the first psychedelic drug ever used for PTSD was LSD. And it was used by a Dutch psychiatrist, Dr. Bastiaans. And he was um, working with what he called concentration camp syndrome. So starting in the late 40s, 50s, he started working with LSD 
throughout the 60s, 70s, he was the last person in the world that still had legal permission to give LSD to people because um, a lot of the people were in the concentration camps were Jews, gypsies, homosexuals, but also were Dutch resistance fighters. And they came out and they were in the government. They protected them. So uh, there's an incredible book, if anybody's listening that wants to read it, called Shaviti, S-H-I-V-I-T-T-I, Shaviti, A Vision. It's about an Israeli Holocaust writer, survivor, who went for LSD therapy, and he describes his LSD experiences. And it was very difficult for him. And reading the book, my Israeli relatives knew him. And, and so I think that while LSD and psilocybin can be very helpful, they don't reduce the fear response the same way that MDMA does. And hmm. sometimes people can get overwhelmed. And so that's where I think MDMA is the right drug to start with for trauma or PTSD. But I can imagine a future where you've got a couple sessions of MDMA and then you get psilocybin or LSD, because then you have the spiritual connection, you draw strength from that. So, mm. it, But also what we've discovered is that um, in contrast to the work in the 50s, 60s with LSD, where it was discovered that the depth of the mystical experience, using the questionnaire developed with the Good Friday experiment, that the depth of the mystical experience was correlated with therapeutic outcomes. The deeper the mystical experience, the better you got, the more you got over your fear of dying from cancer or addiction to alcohol or heroin or, or other conditions. And that's been reaffirmed by the research over the last 20 years with psilocybin for depression, for anxiety, for obsessive compulsive disorder, for addictions, for all sorts of things, is that the depth of the mystical experience is correlated with therapeutic outcomes. But in the MDMA research, we've used the same questionnaires for mystical experience, and we find that there is no connection. There is no correlation between whether somebody has a mystical experience and whether they get over their PTSD. Really? That's yeah. surprising. Yeah, it's surprising, but it also gets back to what we were saying before about uh, memory reconsolidation and memory enhancement. I think what you need to do to get over a trauma, which is, you know, again, locked in your subconscious with these memories, is you need to bring the trauma to the surface and you need to process the painful memories. And that requires a certain intact ego because it's about something that happened to you. Now, there are also. We're working with a woman named Rachel Yehuda, who's an expert. She's uh, in charge of mental health at the Bronx VA. We've been trying for 30 years to get permission to do work inside the VA, and um, we're waiting to hear any day now from FDA if, if we get permission with a study that she would do, but we have to fund it. But she's an expert in what's called epigenetics and multi-generational trauma. And so she's done work with Holocaust survivors and their children and have shown that there's a, a biological mechanism. You don't change genes. The DNA doesn't change in one generation. But epigenetics is what's over the genes, what turns genes on and off. And that can epigenetics. change. Epigenetics. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. And that can change in, by trauma, by an experience. And then it can get passed down through the generations. So you still need to bring up these kind of... Um, if, if it's your own kind of, uh, you know, it, it could be like uh, epigenetics is like a set point for trauma and anxiety. Whether it actually carries memories is another question. We, we need to learn more about that. But you need, if it's, if it's your own trauma that happened, you really need to have an intact ego. And I think even for these uh, epigenetic multi-generational traumas, you can, you know, people know the stories of their family traumas. And if you have them in memory, you can work through them. 
And so the, the research that we're wanting to do at uh, Bronx VA is really going to compare two MDMA sessions with three MDMA sessions, sort of an economic, but there'll be kind of an epigenetic component to see if we can change biological markers on multi-generational traumas. And the other bigger picture here is that in the world, we have, um, you know, the Sunnis and Shiites have been killing each other for 1,400 years. And it just goes on and on and on. Catholics and Protestants have been killing each other, not so much recently, but but the Sunnis and Shiites are killing each other all the time. So how do we break these cycles of multi-generational trauma so people can come fresh mm. to uh, what they're seeing? And then also, the world is going to be coming increasingly traumatic. We see that now in the COVID virus. But when people start to try to deal with uh, global warming, I've heard some estimates there could be as much as a billion climate refugees. Mm from storms, from things like that. So I think the world is going to be entering an extraordinarily uh, traumatic, challenging time. And where psychedelics can really come into play is helping people process trauma and, and work for it, and then also giving the spiritual experience. So I think this idea of the essence of the mystical experience, the essence of this is this sense of unity and connection. Mm. It's a transcendence of time and space, a sense of connection. And I think if you feel that, and you not just hear it, but you feel that kind of mystical experience, you are going to become um, more compassionate to people who are different than you because you realize we're mostly the same. You won't be so frightened by the, quote, the other. You know, people like Trump won't be as successful in generating fear about the other, the immigrant. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I think we yeah. need millions and billions of people to be grounded in this mystical experience. And I think you can get it in meditation. You can get it in sex. You can get it in nature. You have what they call gratuitous grace. It just comes over you. But for thousands of years, people have used psychedelics reliably to generate it. So I think psychedelics in a um, supportive, supervised context can really play a major role in spiritualizing humanity. And you know, the other way to do it, um, which was a big thing also during the 60s, is you can go up to the moon and look back at the Earth from space. <laughs> yeah. And you see it as yeah. one whole thing without the yeah. borders. But that's kind of expensive. So psychedelics <laughs> are cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and uh, the reality of, uh, like, more, and uh, as you were just saying, more and more people having that direct experience of the ineffability and the connectivity, that, that expansion of numbers is so crucially important to be able to make the kind of changes uh, that we're talking about, you know, in terms of the us and the them and the polarization and the environment and all of it. But I'm, I'm like, um, what's happening here and you going into phase three uh, of, of this, uh, uh, of what you've been doing for 34 years to get to the point where this could actually be approved by the FDA and uh, and and you sort of sideways said, yeah, look at all, you know, the trauma of the frontline workers and so on that's going on. And how are we going to help them? You know, so the, the reality of, of that being uh, a possibility sooner than later, uh, given the fact that like, this is not going to end. None of this stuff is just going to suddenly go away. And we are going to have to help a lot of people come through this. So uh, to me, that's uh, super exciting, Rick, that this is going into yeah. that stage. Yeah, thank you. So where we're at right now, once we've had this interim analysis, the FDA has actually come to us and said, um, because of COVID, not just us, but other researchers, they said, 
you can have an option. If you want, you could consider um, shutting the study down early because we are not able to enroll new people right now. So what we propose to the FDA is that we shut the study down with 90 instead of 100 people. The more people you have, the more likely you are to get statistical significance. So it's a little bit of a risk on our part. But we think because of the interim analysis, we're going to do well. And mm. we will have the 90th person at the end of June. And they will not have finished all three MDMA sessions. But with the FDA's agreement, um, if we get it, then we will say as long as we have a baseline measure and then one measure after at least one of the experimental sessions, then um, we can count their data. So we're waiting here. We think FDA will say yes. So we think by the end of June, we'll have the FDA uh, approval and we'll have finished our first of two phase three studies. We'll have the data by the end of August before then. Uh, and then we'll know if this first study was successful, which we think is, then we'll do the next phase two study, which we'll have done by the end of 2021. We think by the end of 2022, we'll have completed all the negotiations with FDA and it will become a prescription medicine. And once FDA says yes, Health Canada and Israel will say yes. And we're um, going with a big fundraising campaign, I'll say now, is we call it the Capstone Campaign. And it's for um, $30 million. In the history of MAPS, we've raised over $80 million. We've got pledges for more coming up. Um, and so we are trying to raise $30 million more to complete all of the phase three and 10 million of that is for what we call commercialization. So it's for training new therapists. It's for this expanded access, compassionate use. It's mm, getting yeah. our team to, to ready to market it. And so we've raised $11 million already of the $30 million over the last uh, several weeks from our board of directors and, and key allies in this group called Psychedelic Science Funders Collaborative. And what I'm uh, happy to announce today, but as I said, this can come out um, yeah. in a couple of weeks, is that we have now gotten a group of people that have offered a $10 million matching grant. Wow. So if we can raise another $10 million, and we're going to have 60 to 90 days to do so, um, then we will have $20 million plus the 11 we already have. We will have our capstone campaign funded. And then we will be able to move forward without stop. And then our next big thing is another 30 million we need to raise to bring MDMA to Europe and globalize it mm. because we can use all of our data. So, so what, what we're saying to people is that if you can um, support this uh, uh, capstone campaign, mm. your donation will be doubled and it will enable us to really move forward. And what's so important, and, and this I really want to emphasize, is that we're trying to do two things. One is make MDMA into a medicine, be the point of the spear to open up the whole field for psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. But the other thing we're trying to do is demonstrate that if we do this in a nonprofit context or a public benefit context, so MAPS has started the MAPS Public Benefit, which is our for-profit arm, that will sell MDMA for a profit if we get approval, and it, it will be taxable. So we couldn't keep that in the nonprofit because that should be taxable. But it's not a traditional for-profit. It's a public benefit where you maximize public benefit over profit. And it has only one investor, which is the nonprofit. Mm, so the nonprofit right. 100% owns the for-profit. And so what we're trying to do is demonstrate a new way to market drugs. Most people have a terrible view of the pharma industry. And in many cases, that's for good reasons. You know, that they're yeah. very um, exploitative about what they, how they charge. So we're trying to demonstrate that through donations rather than investments, we're going to be able to maximize 
mm. uh, public benefit. And our goal is really mass mental health, because as I said, the world is on fire. People are going to be increasingly stressed as the denial. I think we're right now in this phase of you know, massive denial, the total fantasy of conspiracy theories and denial and everything's great and just, you know, but that's going to collapse. And then we're going to be faced with enormous challenges. Yeah. And we're going to need people to really be spiritualized and process their trauma. And that's where we need mass mental health. So the other thing just to say is that while we're focused on pharmaceutical drug development, we're also focused on drug policy reform and ending prohibition. So I think it's a fundamental human mm -hmm. right for people to experience consciousness from different ways. We've got the freedom of religion, the freedom of the press, the freedom of assembly, all of these things. And so I think that we should end up with a system of licensed legalization. And to get back to Ramdas here and Leary, they proposed this in the 60s that to do the way psychedelics should be legal is like a driver's license. So, you know, what we know is right now that let's look at alcohol. You end up drinking a bunch of alcohol, driving, you get a ticket for driving under the influence, you lose your driver's license, but then you go ahead, you buy more alcohol, you're drunk again, and you kill somebody, even though you lost your driver's license. So what uh, Leary and Ramdas were proposing, and what we're proposing now today, actually, is that psychedelics should be a licensed legalization. You'll go to one of these thousands of psychedelic clinics, you'll have a supervised experience, you know what you're getting in for, that'll be paid for by tax money, and then you can go buy it and do it on your own. And if you misbehave, let's say you take LSD one time and you think that you're dying and you end up um, taking off all your clothes and running down the street naked screaming and you get arrested for that, you should be punished for that. But you shouldn't be really arrested. You should be supported. There should be harm reduction. We should help those people. We shouldn't tranquilize them or pathologize them. But you should have uh, your license to buy LSD revoked for a period of time. <laughs> and so yeah. that anyway, that, that's yeah. why we're, we're saying that yeah. as nonprofit pharma, because of the donations and our not having to supply profits back to investors, we can actually try to make it so the vast number of people will be able to get MDMA, not through us, but right. just for their own personal use. Right, right. And by the way, everybody, we'll have links up uh, on all of this. And if you're anybody out there is interested in supporting uh, these different initiatives that Rick is talking about, uh, you'll be able to to find it easily. Uh, and uh, you know, I was going. It's funny that you mentioned this thing at the very end. I was going to my last little thing with you, Rick, was going to be about. What do you think that Leary and Ramdas's real contribution to psychedelics was? Oh, well, you just oh. said it. You're a psychic as well. <laughs> well, uh, well uh, also, let me say that I think Leary gets too much criticism. So I, I believe that science is holy, that there's something spiritual about science. It's, it's our effort to try to work through our biases and see the truth, you know, and we're always using filters. I mean, that's what you learn with psychedelics, you know, that, that there's always this filter. We never see really the truth, but, but there's something holy about science. And so I feel that it was really terrible. And that's why I used the word scientific fraud, what Leary did about exaggerating the risks. Uh, I mean, exaggerating the benefits and denying some of the risks in the research that he did. But I think more important is the work that he did trying to say that people needed to question authority and that they needed to have this mystical experience that our normal ego approach is too limited and it's leading to um, sort of the humanity destroying the planet and that we need <laughs> a spiritual of. grounding. <laughs> and so I, I think the work that Ramdas and Leary did and, and Ralph as well 
by moving out of the academic context into the social struggles of the day, really produced um, a large number of people willing to do psychedelics in the 60s. Now, there was a backlash. There was a lot of problems. And so 50 years later, now a lot of the people that we're dealing with in positions of power and money did psychedelics because of Leary and Rondas yeah, and Metzner. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's falling on more receptive ears. Right. And all these people did not follow, you know, um, turn on, tune in, drop out. They didn't all go to live on a commune. They didn't give, uh, they didn't go with, um, you know, to live at, uh, Milbrook. at the farm where, you know, with Stephen Gaskin, they didn't grow oh, soybeans. Yeah, yeah. You know, they yeah. ended up becoming, major contributors to society. And so the idea that this is going to turn you into counterculture person is a product of the time. It's not a product of the drug. It's the right. context, not the drug. So I think that, um, I don't know that I would have ever done psychedelics if not for, um, on the one hand, uh, Tim and, and Ralph and Ramdas leaving. And the other was uh, Ken Kesey mm, yeah. and the Merrick Pranksters. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. It, it, actually for me, it, it was the first chink in the armor. I believe all the propaganda about psychedelics as I was growing up in the sixties. I believe it made you crazy. If you took it six or seven times that you were certifiably insane. If you took LSD, that was a big story. You take LSD six or seven times, you're certifiably insane. I believed it. I believe that it hurt your chromosomes, but I was very interested in reading all the time and, um, in the other, but, um, I was studying Russian and I was to learn about the Russians cause I'd been traumatized by the Cuban missile crisis as well as the Holocaust and then Vietnam. But in my Russian class, this guy gave me a book to read, and I loved it. And I gave it back to him, and it was phenomenal. It was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Mm. And he said, did you know that part of this book was written under the influence of LSD? And I said, no, that's impossible. There is no possible way that you could do LSD and produce anything of value. It's hallucinations. It's fake. It's and, and once I verified that it was really true, um, that's really what uh, did it yeah, for me. Uh, so, 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 so I, I guess I, I do want to say that while I have criticized um, Tim uh, much more so than um, Ralph and Ramdas, because I think they were willing to wrestle with uh, more complex stories mm. and with their own imperfections, they, yeah. they weren't so brittle that they had to be perfect. Yeah, uh, like yeah. Tim, he would run away from things. Um, but I, I do think that uh, they've made enormous positive contributions, mm. and mm. I, and I will say that. Um, this, this coming together of lifelong meditators and psychedelics in either research contexts or in more understanding meditation, that that's really the kind of um, reunion in a sense that we need. That, that there was one sense during the 60s that when psychedelics were squashed and criminalized and a lot of people would, okay, who needs them now? You know, Ramnus was quoted as saying, when you get the message, hang up the phone. But there's a lot of different messages at different times in your life. It's not like there's one message. So I think psychedelics yeah. are useful through the lifespan. And yeah. so I think it's really great for me to see this meditation mm -hmm. psychedelic communities coming together. Yeah. And you, you mentioned this to me uh, in a, the chat that we had, which is probably a year and a half ago or something. And uh, it's something I've discussed with my, uh, you know, confrere, shall we say. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm really hearing that message. I am really great, hearing great. that message. Ragu, so I, I really appreciate uh, that advisal. Really do. Everybody, uh, all of this uh, linkage you will get on, uh, you go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash mindrolling. 
And in the show notes, we will have everything you could possibly need to support what Rick's doing. Look at, uh, you know, we'll put that Forbes article in there. Oh, great. You know, uh, put links to that. And and I want to, this Shaviti book, that that really um, piqued my interest. Absolutely. So we're going to have all of it. And uh, again, thanks so much for for being here. And uh, this is this is truly exciting to actually look in a couple of years from now, (laughs) going down with a script. I mean, come on, I would never, ever have thought in my lifetime that anything like that was possible. Well, one one of the things that I'm most proud of in MAPS is 34 years that we were able to start LSD research a few months before Albert Hoffman died and before his wife, Anita died. This was in 2008. Uh, Anita died in 2007. We were able to start research with LSD for uh, people with life-threatening illnesses in Switzerland. And I also take great comfort in knowing that Ramdas and Ralph Metzner also knew that the psychedelic renaissance was underway Mm, and that what they had been so demonized for doing before things had now turned around. And so, you know, it's sad that Ramdas didn't live to see FDA approval, mm. but he knew that things were coming in that direction. Yeah, yeah. And, and he, that's, yeah he was so supportive and so happy. And uh, yeah, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm pretty, uh, pretty satisfied that, wow, this life that uh, he, this life's work that he started with Ralph and Tim and everything. I mean, it's why I'm the same as you and everybody I know, you know, I mean, you know, my crazy story of meeting Ramdas the first time was, oh, uh, can you help? I was running a radio station as a PD and can you help promote this talk he's given at McGill University? Who? Ramdas? What? And then they said, you know, Richard Alpert, Tim Leary. And I went, oh, God namaste <laughs> yes of course you know so well, yeah um, so this is for full circle for sure yeah th- th- and and since you mentioned mcgill i'll just say that there's one more thing that needs to happen to fully have the psychedelic renaissance sort of come around for a circle and so that's at mcgill because the cia mk ultra mind control research the worst of it ever took place at mcgill and if we can get therapeutic research with psychedelics taking place at McGill, then that will sort of heal the stain of that whole uh, LSD mind control research. And we do have one of our phase three sites is in Montreal with a psychiatrist oh, trained really? at McGill, wow. but we could not find anybody at McGill who's still there willing to affiliate with the study because in Canada, in the U S you can do studies independent of institutional affiliation, Mm. but in Canada, you need institutional affiliation. So nobody at McGill would just say they would supervise this project by a person that they had trained. And so we actually have the university of Toronto is uh, supervising the study in McGill. Oh, really? That's so weird. I mean, it's not in McGill. It's, it's, it's a block or two away off campus. So one day we may be, to bring back to your alma mater, you know, a, a positive research with psychedelics, yeah. that will be the real okay. full circle. Let, let me blow your mind. My mother was part of, uh, was, was at uh, the psychiatric section of uh, attached to McGill and she was given acid. She was part of the CIA experimentation. Okay. Oh, no, that's horrible. No, it wasn't, because when I tell you, I said, Mom, 
So what happened? Because, you know, and she went, oh, man, I just, I felt so great. I felt like I was part of everything. It was wonderful. So she. (laughs) That's great. They cut through even the goddamn CIA, you know. Wow, that's great. Because she must have been part of a different study. Because one of the studies that they did at the Allen Memorial Institute. That's where she was at the Allen. Yeah, well, maybe it was the same one, but they give people electroshock and LSD to break she, their personalities down. Yeah, she got electroshock as well, but uh, I don't okay. think it was in the same con, uh, uh, connectivity okay. to, to the acid. The, whatever it was, the acid was a plus for her, okay? Wow, that's great to hear. That, that is blowing my mind. That's amazing. <laughs> that yeah. Oh, thank you so much for being here, Rick. And, uh, you know, let's... Uh, um, get another update in, uh, you know, somewhere down the line here. All right. I'd, I'd love that for sure. This is mind rolling on be here now network. And, uh, we shall see you next week. Thanks, Rick. Terrific. Wonderful. Wonderful.